And Lord, as we look at more on the topic of citizenship this morning, help us to gain your mind on what it means to live in this world during the time, the days, the years you give us here as those who belong to you and are headed to heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. We're doing part two of citizenship. I, it sounds boring. I, I hope it's not. This is one of those things that affects all of us every day. And especially, depending on what's going on, sometimes this affects us more than at others. But if you remember last week, we talked about citizenship, kind of the big picture, the big theological picture, which was, somebody's not happy, are they? Which was first and foremost that if you're a Christian, we know who that somebody is. If you're a Christian, your primary or first citizenship on earth is not to any particular nation, it's to heaven. And that as a citizen of heaven living on earth, your role is as an ambassador. You're a citizen of heaven. You're awaiting the coming of your kingdom in the return of the Lord Jesus, Paul said in Philippians 3. And so until that happens, you and I as Christians were his ambassadors. And we said that his big citizenship theme in the scriptures is that his citizens, kingdoms of light, are calling those who don't yet know him out of the kingdom of darkness into the citizenship of heaven itself. And that's the role of Christians, primarily or first and foremost on the earth. We talked about Lot and Abraham and that we don't want to look like Lot who sunk his roots down in Sodom. Remember, it was a green, well-watered place. It was like the United States, I'm sure. But he lost his focus. But Abraham, who had been given all of the what we would call the Middle East there in modern Israel, Abraham, it said, maintained this attitude of a pilgrim. Even though he knew God had given him the land physically, he said that wasn't enough. He knew God had a bigger kingdom, a more important or eternal city he was going to build. And that was the city he was looking to. So that was the groundwork. Today we get a lot more practical, I hope. I hope you come away, I would say, with two things. One, maybe a clearer sense of what are the issues related to citizenship and maybe enough questions when you leave that as things come up, as they are certain to, those will be tumbling around in your mind maybe with a little clearer format. There are areas that... um, in any realm in which you are trying to apply a biblical principle to something that the Bible doesn't clearly spell out. The Bible says do not murder. That's clear. But there are other issues that are less clear, and so you try and fix, find a biblical principle to apply to those issues. And I certainly don't have all the answers on issues related to citizenship, but I think there's some key principles that if we keep in mind Those can at least help us as various decisions we need to make come up. So we'll look at very practical applications today on earthly citizenship. And we will break that down into two parts, responsibilities to be fulfilled, the responsibilities we have as citizens on the earth, Christian citizens on the earth, and then privileges of citizenship that we should be taking advantages of. So the first is the responsibility. And let me frame this by starting with a question. If you happen to be in Cuba today or next week or next month, and a Christian approached you on the street and asked you the question, how do I be a good citizen in Cuba? What would you tell them? 
how do I be a good citizen, a good citizen in the country of Cuba? <clears throat> Cuba is ruled by an evil dictator. Cuba, Cuba's government is opposed to Christianity. Christians are one of the prime targets of the Cuban police. They've been in prison since Castro took government office. What do you tell a Christian in Cuba about being a good citizen in a country you know that hates Christianity, opposes Christ, and puts Christians in jail? How are they to be a good citizen? And to answer that question and to start giving us some perspective on government and citizenship in general, if you want, we're going to be in a couple passages. Romans 13 is one of the key passages in the New Testament on citizenship and what God calls us to. And as we read the beginning of Romans chapter 13, starting at verse 1, I want you to remember that when Paul writes this, what government in his day looks like. Government in his day is ruled by an evil dictator, at least as evil as Castro. And this would be Caesar Nero. So Nero is Caesar when Paul's writing this. I just want you to keep that in mind. And Paul says in Romans 13, let every person, now we would say specifically Christian, since he's written this to the church in Rome, let every person be in subjection or obedience to the governing authorities. For there is no, there is no authority except from God. This is an exclusive statement. And those which exist, those authorities, those governments which exist, are established by God. Remember, he's talking about the Roman government when this is written. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance or the command of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Generally speaking, he says in verse 3, rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? <clears throat> Do what is good and you'll have praise from the same. This is not always true, but generally this is true. Verse 4, for it, government, the Roman government in Paul's day, he says, is a servant of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. God has instituted government, Paul says, and God has given government the sword, that is, the power to imprison and ultimately, in some cases, to relieve you of your life. It is a minister or a servant of God, an avenger, who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil, who brings judgment on those who practice evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection to the government, not only because of wrath, that is, if you do evil, you will experience the government's wrath and judgment, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, your conscience towards God, because of this, you pay taxes. Things haven't changed, Toby. We're still paying taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. In one role, when we pay taxes, we're supporting God's servants, that is, those in government. And his conclusion in verse 7 is this, Therefore, when all is said and done, render to all what is due. Tax to whom tax is due. Custom to whom custom. Uh, the custom here is probably simply another form of property or sales tax. We're taxed twice. Double taxation. I don't know. Fear to whom fear and honor to whom honor. 
So Paul says when the dust settles on government, you are to obey. And you are to see the governments that exist, the authorities that exist, as God's servants. And they're meant to be a blessing. They're meant to be a good thing, not a bad thing. And again, knowing that Paul wrote this while Nero was Caesar helps, I think, establish the perspective we're supposed to have. He did not write this because government during his day was benevolent or kind to Christians. That was not the case. But he still said these principles were true, that the authorities, the government that existed, was set by God. So that if you disobeyed or rebelled against that government authority, he says you were rebelling against God. Paul says submit and obey the government. If you remember when we studied through the book of Daniel, you could say as a Christian under Rome, God made a mistake. This isn't the government he meant to be over me. But you remember in Daniel, one of the pictures of world governments were these animals, these beasts. And they looked terrible and frightening in one sense they were. And it looked like one beast was simply devouring another. So it just looked like the biggest dog on the block was winning. But in chapter 7 we saw, no, God's in heaven, the Messiah is at his right hand. And he is overseeing those governments, those beastly, earthly governments. God was still in charge of them. They were still fulfilling his will. And the Roman government in Paul's day was still fulfilling God's will. And the Cuban government today in Cuba is still fulfilling God's will. So generally, too, it's important to remember that even bad government is better than anarchy or no government. This is like fathers in a home. Statistically, if you just look at the way kids turn out, kids who have any father in the home generally do better than families with no father in the home. That's not exclusively so. You and I both know exceptions. But generally, and the same thing is true here, generally even bad government is better than no government. And again, all government, Paul says, is ordained by God. Listen to what Peter says about the same thing, and this is another key text about Christians and government. This is 1 Peter 2. The passage I'm reading to you here is actually directed to servants, but it applies to Christians relative to government. The theme or the principle is exactly the same. And please remember when you read this, that when Peter makes this principle, this statement, he also is executed by the same government in power at the time of Paul. He is still speaking under the Roman rule, and he also, like Paul, will be executed by Rome. And this is what he says. 1 Peter 2, at verse 13, Pete says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake, not, not necessarily always for government's sake, but for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evil and the praise of those who do right. Again, generally, that's what government's supposed to do. Such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men. Don't use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Remember who you really belong to and use what you can under that the rule of government as bond slaves of God, and just like Paul concludes with the same thing, therefore, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fellow Christians, fear God, and honor or obey or submit to the king. The king, in their day, that was the norm, but for us, we would say whatever government is in role at the time. 
carry this one step further, in John 19, this is Jesus before Pilate. And again, remember, Jesus says this to the man who is illegally, unethically, condemning him to death. Listen to what Jesus says to Pilate. Pilate says, when Jesus refuses to answer the claims against him, you don't speak to me, do you not know that I have authority? I have authority to release you, and I have authority to crucify you. Jesus answered and said, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. And from above does not refer to Caesar primarily, it refers to God. Jesus says, that's true, but your perspective is still a little wanting. The authority you have over me is given by God, my Father. And in fact, in Acts 2, you remember the apostles get a view of what God was doing. They're confused now, but later they get it. Psalm 2, that God's Messiah was rejected by the Gentiles and that the Jews and the Gentiles who conspired together, but in the end, all they were doing was fulfilling, Acts 2 says, God's predetermined will. God used that evil government. He used the evil Jewish leaders to accomplish his will in Christ's crucifixion and your redemption and mine. So Jesus says, the one who is the ultimate authority in heaven and earth said to Pilate, your authority comes from above. Comes from above. So even under evil governments or under rulers that are less than ideal, like Castro or Caesar or Pilate or presidents we've had or will have, we are called to submit and honor or obey the government authorities in place over us. The norm for you and I is that we are to obey government in all the normal course of life. Just a few things. This means paying taxes. Still, even when we think they're unfair or wasteful or whatever, you're still called to pay your taxes, to not cheat on your taxes. You're to obey traffic regulations, speeding, parking, I mean, this is little stuff. It's the same thing, though. You're called on to provide insurance if the government requires insurance for your vehicle. You're required by God's commands to put your kids in children's seats in a vehicle if the government requires it. In your personal or your business life, you are, as a Christian, called on to submit to government regulations that you don't like for the Lord's sake if not for the government's. The normal course for a Christian, for you and I, is that we obey the government. That is absolutely the norm. In fact, it's probably the norm about 98% of the time. These commands are absolutely clear. And if you read the rest of the New Testament, and I'll just mention so I don't forget later, read Paul's activity between Acts 22 and 26 when he's incarcerated and look at his attitude we will a little bit later, and what he does and doesn't do related to the government in place over him. Or read Fox's Book of Martyrs and other church histories that tell you how the church responded to evil, oppressive government in its early days. It helps us gain a perspective today, I think. So the norm, just remember this, this is what you need to hear today, the norm is that you are called as a Christian to obey government, but there are exceptions. In fact, the exceptions are this. Civil disobedience is required of a Christian 
This isn't the exception as if it's a default position. Civil disobedience of a Christian is sometimes required. It's required. Let me read you out of Acts 4 and 5 briefly. If you remember the story when Peter and John are going up to the temple and they heal the lame man, and this healing brings all this attention from the people of the temple to them, and they preach the gospel, they preach in Jesus' name, and they're brought before the Jewish leaders. And the Jewish leaders, it says in Acts 4.18, summoned them, and they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard. Peter effectively says, We will not obey you. We cannot obey you. We're obeying God in what we're doing. This same storyline continues because they go back and preach again. They're brought back to the same Jewish leaders who had forbidden them to teach in Jesus' name. And in Acts 5.28, they say, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered and said, We must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. Remember, the first principle is obey government. Governments that exist are are ordained by God. They are His servants. He's instituted them. Obey them. But Peter says when there's a challenge, when obeying man means disobeying God, there's absolutely no question. I'm called to civil disobedience. We must obey God, not man. And this has to do with lines of authority. This, in, in one way, helps me uh, think of this. We are always obeying the authority set above us. And there's a chain. There's a chain of authority. Think of this civilly. If Shawnee County required me to do something that the state forbid, I would say the state has greater authority than Shawnee County. I must disobey Shawnee County's ordinance, whatever that might be. Or if state government, this goes back to the Civil War, if state government said one thing that the federal government said no way, no how, we would obey the greater authority. There's a chain of command, there's a line of authority. Well here, remember that ultimately, always, everywhere, God is the ultimate authority. There's no authority greater than Him. So... If I'm called on God's the ultimate authority, if the government that's in that chain above me but beneath God tells me to do something God has forbidden, I must obey the greater authority. So there are times in which, uh, this would be the exception certainly for us where we live, but there are times in which a government might require its citizens to do something that Christians are forbidden from doing by God. There are times in which a government might require citizens to abstain from doing something God has required. In those cases, there's no question whatsoever. Christians are called upon to obey God and not the government. And this is absolutely consistent in that we are always obeying the authority over us. So if a sub-authority under God requires or forbids something that God requires... Am I saying this right, negatively or positively? We always obey the greater authority. 
if I left my kids at home and I said Rachel's in charge and Rachel requires Adrian to do something that, dad, that she knows dad forbids, Adrian would say to Rachel, I'm obeying dad, not you. She would obey the greater authority with relish, I have no doubt. But that's the thought. We're obeying the greater authority. So if you're commanded to do something by government that God forbids, it's not you think about it, it's you must disobey. You don't have an option. We are always, Christians are always under authority. That's not an issue. You're under authority. And it's just that we remain under authority by obedience. So if government commands you to do something God forbids, you must disobey government consistently to obey God. If government forbids you from doing something God commands, you must disobey. No question about it. Let me give you some examples. Doing something forbidden. In the, in the world, you and I inhabit right now, Voice of the Martyrs, one of the agencies we support as a church, along with folks like Open Doors with Brother Andrew, these Christians break laws around the world every day. Every day. Voice of the Martyrs has the strongest position of, on this that I know of among Christian agencies. They will tell you unapologetically they are glad to break the law of these nations because they're obeying God in doing so. The law they're breaking is they're smuggling Bibles. They're smuggling Bibles. The government say you may not bring those books into our country. These Christians say, you know what, we're commanded. You remember the great mandate, Matthew 28, we talked about last week? We are commanded by our ultimate authority, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has all authority in heaven and on earth. We are commanded to share the gospel and teach or instruct believers, disciples. And how do you do that? You do that with God's word, the Bible. So these agencies unapologetically will tell you they break the law every day. And in breaking the law of man, they are absolutely obeying God because they understand they are required by God as Christians to spread the gospel and to disciple believers. Absolutely, unapologetically, I'm in total and hearty agreement with them. In many countries today, if you're a Christian, it is against the law. Muslim nations, Hindu nations, and what's left of communist nations, most of that has changed. It is against the law to proselytize. That means to share your religious view in such a way as to try to attract converts. If you're a Christian in one of those Muslim nations or Hindu nations, you must break the law. God, the great mandate by the King of Kings in Matthew 28 is you are to spread the gospel. Every Christian is called on to share the gospel. You remember, that's our role. We're ambassadors. We're calling men and women, children, anyone that will hear, to come out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's Son. That's our mission. That's our great mission on the earth. That's our key role as citizen of heaven. So if you're a Christian in those countries, you must disobey the civil government. You're called on to disobey civil government. You have no choice. In that disobedience, you are obeying God. Absolutely, without question. Refusing to do something that the government commands. In China today, and in the Soviet Union in the past, the government required every Christian meeting to sign up with the government, to register as a church. 
In China today, the great church, the real Christian church, is the underground church. These are all unregistered. They're unregistered for a reason. They are consciously disobeying the civil government's requirement to register because they understand the civil government requires their registration so they can tell them what they will and will not say. So the government can control the church. And the Chinese Christian leaders understand that they may not be controlled by the civil, atheistic, unbelieving government. Christ is the head of the church, not the Chinese government. So these house churches disobey the government every day, and they must. They're required to, to obey Christ. Uh, a historical perspective, and I'll, I'll mention this in two veins, the Stamp Act in the history of our country, I think, is greatly misunderstood by most people today. When I grew up and heard about the colony period and the Stamp Act, I understood that the colonists were revolting because of taxation without representation. That was, that was an issue, but that was not the key issue. The Stamp Act was not Christians buying stamps, postage stamps. And it was not taxation was not the key issue. One of the great patriots most people don't know much about was Samuel Adams. He was a pastor up in the Northeast. I forget which colony. He was typical, though, of the Christians who said, we've got a problem with this, and this was why. The Stamp Act required the king's stamp on all official business. And it included the church. And there was no equivocation. The king knew what he was doing and the colonists knew what he was doing. You remember their forebears had left England, why? To practice their faith, to get out from underneath the oppressive church and government of England and the government ran the church. And King George's Stamp Act was his claim that he ran the church in the colonies. It was a spiritual issue that the pastors had. It was not taxation primarily. The Stamp Act said the king is head of the church. And they said, no way. Christ is the head of the church. Let me give you examples of, I believe, misapplying civil disobedience. Give you another side. Historically, one of my heroes a guy I love, and I would encourage his writings to you, they're not all good, but most of them are, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor in Germany during World War II. Uh, the Cost of Discipleship, one of his key books, Life Together, two of his best-known books. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer left the country during part of the war, and he came to New York, but he felt like he felt like to be an effective and loyal pastor, shepherd of his flock, he had to return to Germany. So he did. He was warned not to. He was told not to, warned by his friends, don't do it. But he did, and he went back. Now, I don't fault Dietrich for that. No problem with, with going back. However, Dietrich Bonhoeffer became part of a conspiracy to assassinate Adolf Hitler. This Christian brother who was sharing the gospel with the German people around him and being a light in darkness, I think absolutely and totally blew it. I think a total lapse of judgment on his part. He became a, a conspiracy to blow up Adolf Hitler. And most of you have probably heard that Hitler was at a conference in a bunker at a table and the bomb that was supposed to kill him went off. But this table was this huge, heavy affair and it had a large 
uh, supporting member underneath it, and that supporting member was between Hitler and the bomb, and he survived. The conspirators were found. They were rounded up, and they were imprisoned, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer one of, was one of the last Germans executed by Hitler before he took his own life. Bonhoeffer lived right up to the very, within days of the end of the war. He was executed at Hitler's command because he had tried to assassinate him. I think he absolutely blew it. That wasn't a pun either. <laughs> he, this was a lapse of judgment. He was not, blowing up Hitler was not mandated by his obedience to Christ. There's, I find no argument for this whatsoever. He thought he was doing good. He was trying to put down evil. But as a Christian, there's no way I could justify his conspiracy to assassinate a political ruler because he thought by doing so, he was taking on the role of authority without God's sanction to put down evil. That's not what God called him to. Let me give you another example, closer to home. Those who assassinate abortionists and blow up abortion clinics, I have... I think they have absolutely no biblical basis for what they're doing. None. They are not required by God to shoot a doctor who practices abortion. They are not required by God to blow up abortion clinics. They are not. Is abortion vile and evil? Is killing these unborn children evil? Absolutely. Sidewalk counseling and all the other ways in which you and I would try and change someone's mind and heart, we should do. But God does not require you and I to put a doctor in our sights and pull a trigger. That is not what Christians are on the earth to do. That is taking government, if you will, the sword into your own hands as not a member of government. I find no biblical justification for this. Because remember, this is the norm. The norm is you must obey government unless doing so breaks God's clear commands. And both of these examples, these Christians were not required to try and kill someone else. These abortion bombers are not required by God to blow up abortion clinics. Let me just tell you, uh, abortion remains one of the key issues for us. Abortion or sacrificing your children, this was going on in the days of Israel, in the days of the prophets. They were taking their infants and putting them on heated idols. They were, sacri- they were killing their, their newborn children. The prophets did not go and kill the idolaters. But they did proclaim God's word. We can do the same thing today. We can do the same thing today. Let me throw a real wrench in this discussion by mentioning this. Just give you something to chew on. The American Revolution, biblically justified, was it? I confess, I would find that an argument I probably could not make. I don't think I could biblically justify the American Revolution. Remember, if the clear principle is you must obey government, unless obedience to government means clear disobedience to God, you obey government. China, the Chinese churches today, they are not overthrowing the government. Even though they're refusing to register as house churches, they are not overthrowing the government. Colonists could have rejected the Stamp Act, the king's attempt to control the churches, without taking up arms against the British Army. Could have done it. They could have 
performed civil disobedience in one area and still submitted to the British government. And, and if I was living at the day, that's the argument I probably would have had to have made. Historically, now we look back and we say, well, we're not sure that God was actually behind the motive, uh, behind their motivation, and that was clear biblically. But I would say, you know, the other side of that is, I look back and I would say, look, clearly God sovereignly oversaw this revolution. I mean, clearly he remarkably preserved George Washington's life, for instance, as commander-in-chief of this rebel force. And clearly God was in a nation-building program and God blessed that in the end. However, God blessed Adam's sin by taking sin and bringing about redemption and making creatures children. It's a dangerous thing to show God's sovereignly making an evil thing good. You don't justify the evil in doing so. So I'm just saying, chew on this, take it home, think about it. I'm not sure I could biblically defend the American Revolution. I could defend disobedience to the Stamp Act, for sure. I'm not sure I could defend the Revolution. And in saying that, you know, one of the reasons that we look back and and kind of with hushed tones think about the American Revolution is because it was successful. But if it hadn't been, we would be speaking with a blimey accent, maybe, and looking at our past a little differently. And I say that to, say, to get to this point. Remember that when you are in the situation where you must disobey civil government, because it, that means obeying God, remember that there may be a price to pay and sometimes a high price to pay. You know, again, in the United States, because of the kinds of men and women whom this nation was started with, because they revered God and had the Bible as their source, we enjoy lots of liberty today that many, many Christians in the world today do not. So, you know, we routinely, we read about and pray for Pastor Gong in China. And we read about and pray for Christians in India and Indonesia who, when they obey civil government, they're thrown in prison and executed and their lands are taken. This is going on today. So remember that if you disobey civil government, when you must, that's a good thing and you should, when you must, but be prepared to pay the price that the civil government may enact against you. The fact that we're still obeying God does not mean that it's going to be easy. It may make our our life very, very difficult indeed. But see, the choice isn't there for you and I, well, we'll make it or we won't based on the benefit. Remember, we're always under authority. We're always under God's authority. And the only time that we're required to disobey civil government is when to do so would mean to disobey God. Let me give you briefly, I know I'm I'm running a little long this morning. Listen to what Peter's uh, attitude is towards this in 1 Peter 2. If you disobey civil government and are punished for it, listen to what Peter says. If when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure, this finds favor with God. If you disobey that civil government and you're punished for it, bear it well, don't scream and shout, bear it well. Peter says this finds favor with God. You've been called for this purpose. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. And when Christ unjustly suffered, what did he do? When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffered, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. 
Peter says that is the example for you and I. When we suffer unrighteously, we obey God and we're punished anyway, Peter says, you're called to it. This isn't exceptional. This is what Christ did. It's the example he's left for you. Bear it patiently. Don't revile back. Entrust yourself to God who judges righteously. Or listen to Acts 5, that passage we were in earlier. Listen to what happens to our friends, Peter and John. They listened to Gamaliel, they called the apostles in, and they flogged them. And they ordered them to speak no more in the name of Jesus, and then they released them. And they, Peter and John, went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they'd been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. That was their perspective. This is so against our culture. They were flogged, guys, this would not feel good. They were rejoicing through their whimpering. You know, a whip on your back, cut your skin open. These guys, they're rejoicing though because they understood we're we're associated with Christ and this is what he's told us would happen. And it's happening. And they were rejoicing. They were being treated unfairly. But they were rejoicing. And that's what we're called to. That's responsibility. Obey government. Unless obedience to government means disobedience to God. You must always obey God. That's the bottom line. And there are occasions in which you must disobey civil government. No question. Privilege. Privilege in a hostile environment. Uh, Acts 22, I'll just commend this to you. Read through it sometime. You'll see Paul's progress through. Let me tell you a few things Paul did, though, in a hostile environment. Paul made use of his citizenship in shrewd and wise ways. In Acts 22, Paul has been in Jerusalem and the Jewish leaders have, they've created this uproar and the Romans come along and there's this riot going on and they see it sent around Paul. They grab him, they pull him out. He tries to address the Jews. They get all angry. They're going to find out what's going on. They're going to get to the bottom of the story. So they stretch Paul out. They're getting ready to whip him, make him tell the real thing. When they stretched him out with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? Therefore, those who are about to examine him, that's a nice thing, I get my whip out and I'm ready for your examination, uh, let go of him. And the commander also was afraid when he found out that he was a Roman because he had put him in chains. Now, Paul suffered. And we've read passages out of 2 Corinthians and Philippians before. This guy was no stranger to sufferings, beatings, floggings, imprisonments. He wasn't, he was willing to take it, but here he didn't have to. So what did he do? He used his citizenship as a Roman as a way out of unnecessary suffering. You know, if we don't have to suffer, don't go there. There's plenty in life already. Paul used his citizenship, the privilege of citizenship, to avoid unnecessary suffering. He did. He'll use citizenship and the law to defend himself. Listen to this in Acts 23. Paul's before the Roman governors and the Jewish leaders. And Ananias, the high priest, commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. And Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit to try me according to the law, the Jewish law, 
and in violation of the law order me to be struck? Paul, as a Jewish citizen now, addresses the Jewish leader and says, you are disobeying the law you say you represent. Deuteronomy said a man may be beaten or flogged only after he has been tried and condemned. And Paul says, how dare you sit to try me according to the law while you yourself are disobeying the law. He required the Jewish leaders to follow their own law. So that if you and I were in a situation in which we were being sued or in court or whatever, because we'd broken the law, we can follow Paul's example and use the law to defend ourselves, the law to our advantage, if it can be done. Paul did. He said, if you're going to try me, you must do it legally. Uh, After he reviles the high priest, he's called to account, do you revile God's high priest? Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it's written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now here's a case in which, almost in the same sentence, Paul says, you must, if you're going to try me by the law, you must do it lawfully, and I will show honor to God's authority here. I wouldn't have spoken quite that way if I'd known he was authority, although I would still hold him accountable to the law. Paul used privilege of citizenship to require those over him to submit to the law they said they were upholding, and we can do the same. And then I love this one too. In Acts uh, 25, I won't read this because of time, but in Acts 25, Paul has been held in Caesarea for over two years with no charges brought against him, just that the Jews are unhappy with him. He hasn't been to court yet, but he's been held in a loose sort of prison, sort of, in Caesarea. He has a certain amount of mobility, but not much, for over two years. And Festus, the new Roman governors, come in, and Paul defends himself before Festus and the Jewish leaders. See, they're after Paul. They're going to get this guy. And if you remember the story before this, 40 of them had taken an oath when Paul was still in Jerusalem two years earlier that they weren't going to eat or drink until they had taken his life. The Jews are still after him, and Paul knows it. And he knows the only reason the Jewish leaders want him to be taken from Caesarea to Jerusalem is so they can kill him. This is the hitch. In Acts 23.11, Jesus appeared to Paul and said, Hey, don't worry about it. You're going to stand for me in Rome to preach the gospel. So here's Paul. He's in the setting. He's imprisoned in Caesarea. The Jews are trying to get him moved back to Jerusalem so they can murder him. But he knows King Jesus has said, I want you in Rome to represent my interests. So what does Paul do? In Acts 25, 11, Paul says, If I'm a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I don't refuse to die. But if none of these things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. He was a Roman citizen, and he made use of his privilege by appealing to Caesar. I love this, because in this, by doing this, Paul gets the protection, at no cost, by the way, of the Roman army to move him from a place he would be murdered otherwise to Rome, where he knows Jesus wants him anyway. I like this. It's like he's hitchhiking, and he's, he's going where God wants him on someone else's tab. He used the privilege of citizenship to avoid unnecessary pain and suffering. 
He used it to challenge the authorities to operate within their authority they had. And he used it to shrewdly get himself where he knew God wanted him to go anyway. I love this. He used the privileges of citizenship in a hostile environment. For you and I, moving to the privilege of citizenship in friendlier, friendlier climates, and specifically in the U.S. or a democracy or a republic, uh, this is where most of us live and breathe, uh, voting, voting. <clears throat> you know, uh, historically, most folks didn't get to vote. You didn't get to choose your leaders or your representatives. We do. Democracies and republics vote for their leadership. I, I could probably make the argument biblically that it is a divine calling. It is a divine responsibility if you live in a republic or democracy to exercise your liberty, your privilege of voting. Because in doing so, you know that God's role for government is to reward good and punish evil. You know that. And if you get to vote for your representatives and you know God's goal for government is reward good, punish evil, you know that God can use you voting to vote for, in some cases, the lesser of two evils. But so that you're, you have a role in the ministry of government in voting to try and make sure that the people who are in those roles of authority will be people who will fulfill God's commission for government in general, which is to reward good and punish evil. So if you have the ability to do that, you and I should do so. We, we understand generally that's God's role for government, and you have a hand in bringing that about. That's a good thing. Sometimes it's not that you're voting for someone that you think is great by any means. Sometimes, literally, it is the lesser of two evils. But that's still being shrewd and wise by asking yourself, what candidate here has the best chance, as I understand it, to reward good and punish or restrain evil? That's who I should be supporting and voting in the capacity I'm able. Political office. You know, the president of the United States today believes he serves in the presidency at God's commission. I don't know if you read before, you remember in the election process, George Bush had thought and prayed and was counseled by a pastoral friend to run for the presidency. He prayed about it. He talked with his wife about it. He believed God was calling him to that office. So he ran and he won. And whether you agree with all his policies or not, George Bush is a professing Christian who says that he is attempting to serve God in his political office. This is an appropriate thing. This is a good thing. It doesn't mean everything he does is right. It doesn't mean you agree with everything. But it means as a Christian, he is in a political office trying to follow through in all the best ways God's role for government. That's a good thing. And just remember this. We know how the story of mankind on the earth ends. We are the Titanic and we are going down. Things get worse, they don't get better. But God has called Christians to be salt and light. And that means, among other things, that we retard the process of decay. And either in voting or by seeking political office, if that's a calling you feel God has for you, you're part of that salt and light role as a Christian in the political arena. It's no small thing. We are decaying. We are sinking. We are going down. But Christians in political office can retard, can slow down that digression. And I think God calls some of us to that. 
in saying that, it's important that we remember that the power that government has is great on one hand, but very, very limited on another. Governments cannot change hearts. Governments cannot change minds. And ultimately, that's what Christians and God really are about, is changing hearts and minds. Governments can't do that. But they can still play that part that God has for them in their role of rewarding good and restraining evil. You know, in fact, in the end, human government will, in the end, anoint their selection for world ruler as the Antichrist. The pinnacle, if you will, of human government will end up being one who will absolutely oppose God, uh, the alternate Christ. That's the direction civil government is going. But God will have his hand in that too. But there's certainly a role for voting and for political office among Christians today. Uh, Military and police. In Romans 13, Paul said God ordains and commissions government. That government is God's servant. If that is true, it can certainly be an honorable thing to serve in military and in police type roles and offices. Because you can, within those roles, you can do the thing government's called to do, motivate good, restrain evil. This can be a high calling, a high calling. You are participating in maintaining peace and safety for the benefit of all around you. And I'm going to close in a minute out of 1 Timothy 2. But for peace to be the norm is a good thing for Christians specifically, both as an individual and because it allows us to continue to share the gospel with those around us. That's a good thing. So if you're a Christian to serve in the military as an international police force, so to speak, or locally in a local police type force, you can also be a servant of God, helping good, restraining evil. You can also do great evil in both of those roles. And back to World War II briefly, you know, there were lots of German officers who, when war crimes uh, were being prosecuted after World War II, do you remember what the common excuse was for the atrocities they were a part of in Germany? They said, we followed orders. That is, you could call that a Christian excuse. I obeyed the civil government. I obeyed the authority that God set over me. It doesn't wash. They were called, if they were Christians, they were called to disobedience in the things they did. And remember, whatever your role, if you're whatever kind of country you live in, whatever kind of political office you have or don't have, whatever kind of police force or army you serve in, remember that always and ever you are first and foremost a citizen of heaven. And because of that, the two great commandments are always our constraints. You love the Lord your God and you love your neighbor as yourself. And that means as a German officer, you are not free to wrongly imprison Christians. And you are not free to torture citizens made in Christ's God's image. You are not free to do so. You're not free to break the two great commandments in fulfilling any other role on earth. If In your role, you are not loving God and loving your neighbor. You must disobey. You must. Those things fall within those categories. This becomes a lot trickier if you're in the military. 
or if you're in police because both of these functions of government require obedience, in a sense, thoughtless obedience. The thing is, as a Christian, you may not give thoughtless obedience. If you were ordered to do something that you understood was disobedience to God or was um, not loving your fellow citizen, you cannot do it. And in fact, again, if you read early church history, you'll see that it was not infrequent that Roman soldiers, in the act of persecuting Christians, converted and joined the Christians in the punishment and the execution, in many cases, that they were receiving from the Roman government. And there, there might be a time when, as an officer in the United States Army, for, I'm just giving hypotheticals, or as a police officer, if you were required to do something against someone else that you knew was not loving God and loving them, you may not do it. This requires thoughtful obedience within those roles. Thoughtful. You're always an ambassador for heaven first. Let me close. Sorry for the long morning. I knew this was going to go long. First uh, Timothy 2, and this is where we'll close. First all of all, Paul says to the church at Ephesus, I, I urge that entreaties, prayers, petitions, thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And this verse for me brings this thing full circle. Paul says, pray for those in authority. And pray so that you may lead a tranquil, quiet life. And within that tranquil, quiet life, you're sharing the gospel with those around you. Why? God desires all men to be saved. This brings you right back to being a citizen of heaven. God's work in the earth today is still calling people out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his Son. And in all the practical things that we do or the practicalities of life we go about as a citizen of the United States or any other country on earth, in the end we're praying for those in authority and we're sharing the gospel with those around us because God desires all men to be saved. And that brings you and I back to we are ambassadors for Christ, always and everywhere. Ben Franklin was our ambassador to France during the Revolution. And I would argue that he's a great example of responsibility and privilege. He was an ambassador in France, representing our needs. He got France to help us, especially on the Navy. He got France to help the colonial war. He fulfilled his responsibility as a citizen of the fledgling United States, and he aided all our efforts in being an ambassador in France. He also enjoyed the privileges of being in France. And some would say too much. He enjoyed the good life in France. But he was always an ambassador, and we're called to that same role. We're an ambassador for heaven, living in the United States or wherever else it is, generally called to obey the civil government in authority over us, praying for that government, using our privileges as we're able to advance the cause of heaven, calling men and women to become citizens of heaven. It's, it kind of makes a circle, but that's the deal. That's the deal. Well, let's close, shall we? Lord, all authority comes from you. 
you are the great, the ultimate authority because you are God and there is no other. And Lord, help us to understand how to be responsible citizens of the United States or any other country you call us to live in. Show us how to exercise the privileges of citizenship, Lord, in a way that honors you and advances your cause on the earth. Lord, to the degree that we are living under government and authority, help us to do so thoughtfully, thoughtfully. If we're in the military or police or in any other activity, Lord, help us to remember that we must always and everywhere obey you first and primarily, and that means loving you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving others as ourself. Lord, I know that if we remember those things, we'll know generally, clearly, when we can continue to obey government and when we must disobey to continue to walk with you. And Lord, we just remember our Christian brothers and sisters in other parts of the world, Lord, for whom obedience to you means imprisonment and sometimes death and loss of privilege and access and freedom. Strengthen and encourage them, Lord, as you did, Paul. And help them, Lord, as you may call us to do also, to entrust ourselves to a God who judges righteously. In Jesus' name, amen.